This is The Refuge, Threshold's Peabody Award-winning third season, originally released in late 2019. The story of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is still far from over. For extras and updates, go to thresholdpodcast.org. This series was supported by the Pulitzer Center. I'm really happy to be Gwich'in. I'm proud to be Gwich'in. My people are some of the most amazing humans that ever walked this planet. They survived some of the harshest, coldest winters migrating. And, you know, they fought to survive so that I can be here. This is Bernadette Dementif, the executive director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee. I'm actually Gwich'aja Gwich'in. There's different tribes, but we all speak united against any development in the Arctic Refuge coastal plain. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and this is the fourth episode in our series about the future of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And it's another two-parter, by the way. This time, we're focusing on Gwich'in voices. The Gwich'in are part of the Athabascan family of tribes. Their territory spans a huge region of northeast Alaska and northwest Canada. Today, there are 15 small villages scattered across this area, but historically, the Gwich'in didn't live in permanent settlements. They were semi-nomadic. They based their lives on the movements of the caribou herds. Bernadette pulls out a map to show me the shape of the Gwich'in homelands. As you can see, there's a line right here that's the border. So they stuck the um, border right in the middle of our ancestral homelands. So half of us are Canadian, half of us are American. Bernadette grew up in Fort Yukon, Alaska, one of those 15 Gwich'in villages, and she now lives in Fairbanks. The organization she leads, the Gwich'in Steering Committee, has been working to protect the coastal plain since the 1980s. And the relationship between the Gwich'in and the caribou is the foundation of their opposition to drilling. All our songs, all our stories, everything is based on the caribou herd. I mean, we have a culture, a spiritual connection to these animals. Bernadette says drilling on the coastal plain is a threat to the Gwich'in because it's a threat to the porcupine caribou herd. The 1002 area where drilling has been approved is one of the places the herd depends on to raise their newborn calves. That's sacred to my people. It's called Izikwetsangwandaigotlit, and that's a sacred place where life begins. Every which in protects the Arctic Refuge coastal plain. That's our identity. Without that place, we would cease to exist. That is how strong the message is to us. I'm always uneasy saying all people of any group think or feel a certain way, especially a group that I'm not a part of. But I can tell you that it's really hard to find Gwich'in people who are supportive of oil development on the coastal plain. I think it's fair to say that they're very united. So this episode is not about diving into the pro versus anti-oil tension. That's not really what's going on here. Instead, we're going to be exploring the backstory. Who are the Gwich'in? What is it like to have such a strong connection to a wild animal? What do we know about how oil development on the coastal plain would affect the caribou? And how are the Gwich'in responding now that oil development has been approved? We have to stand up against any more destruction to our homelands. This is our home. This, Mr. President, is what energy dominance is all about. So let's go. They think that's a 
That's progress. That's not progress. They all like to eat caribou. That's kind of the connective thread. That's connecting thread. The caribou. Every single herd of caribou in Canada is in major decline. We are the caribou people. If it wasn't for the caribou, we won't be here today. It's rainy and cold outside, but I'm in a very snug log cabin. This is Arctic Village. And um, when I look out the window here, I'm just looking out over vast wilderness. We're going to spend most of this episode in Arctic Village, a Gwich'in community of around 150 people in northeast Alaska. Snuggle in. That's a wood stove you can hear in the background. There are no roads into the village. You have to fly in. And the airport is a small patch of gravel. So far in this series, we've been up on the northern edge of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Now we've hopped over the Brooks Range, the mountains that bisect the refuge, and we're on the southern boundary. The refuge officially begins just across the river from Arctic Village. When I was there in August of 2017, the porcupine caribou herd was moving through the mountains outside of town. I'm on the border of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I'm well above the Arctic Circle. There are people out hunting caribou all around me. Um, It's pretty cool. Alaska is home to 32 different caribou herds, and at over 200,000 animals, the porcupine herd is one of the biggest. Their name comes from the Porcupine River, a tributary of the Yukon, which winds through their territory, and they have the longest land migration route of any mammal on the planet. It can be more than 1,500 miles round trip. In the early summer, they nurture their young calves on the northern side of the Brooks Range, close to the coast, By mid-July, they've usually begun the trek back over to the southern side. If you haven't done so yet, you might want to listen to the short intermission we posted in between episodes three and four to hear about what that journey looks and feels like. It really is remarkably beautiful looking up into the mountains on the edge of the wildlife refuge. If this were in the lower 48, this would be a major tourist destination. Walking through Arctic Village feels more like walking on a country road than walking through town. Other than the main drag, where you can find the store, a church, and the school, the houses are pretty spread out. And it's obvious that people here still rely heavily on the animals of this region to sustain themselves. Fish are laid out on drying racks next to people's homes, entryways are decorated with antlers, and children have painted tributes to caribou all over the outside wall of the store. And everywhere I went, I found tiny bits of bone and teeth scattered on the ground. This place is so defined by hunting that the bodies of animals have become part of the soil itself. And it's also a place defined by quiet. This is Arctic Village on Saturday afternoon. And that's exactly how Sarah James likes it. My name's Sarah James, and I live in Arctic Village, Alaska. Uh, it's called Washenko. Uh, that means a creek with a high bank. Sarah is in her mid-70s, and she wears her long gray hair and a ponytail down her back. As she leads me into her house, we walk by buckets on her porch, holding thick bones that were clearly part of a living animal not too long ago. I've been cutting meat. <laughs> The bones are stripped clean, but still stained red with fresh blood. She says they came from a moose recently shot by a young man in the village. And he shot that his first bull moose. 
So he gets to distribute. Following tradition, she says, he first gave some meat to everyone who helped him in the hunt. Then word went out around the village for everyone to come and get a portion. But the sharing didn't stop there. Sarah divided the meat she'd been given into smaller portions so she could hand more out to others. The first portion went to a visitor to the village. And then I sending one to my friend. She's not doing good with cancer. And I'm sending one to her. And then I sent, I want one to that one elder down here. I found out they were not getting any kind of meat, so I sent it up down. As we sit down to talk, all of Sarah's tools from this work are still out. Knives, bowls, a blood-stained piece of cardboard laid on top of a low table, and a big rock, which she says she uses to break the bones. Using part of the earth for cleaning the animals they hunt is a Gwich'in value, she says. And that's another respect mm. for our food. Sarah has led a fascinating life. In the same room where she's been processing the moose meat, there's a photograph hanging on the wall of her shaking hands with President Clinton. She offers me a cup of tea made from berries she's collected, and as the water heats up, she shows me a whole shelf full of books in the back of her house that feature her and her work. As I got to know Sarah, part of me wanted to drop everything and make a whole podcast season just about her if she would let me. I'm not doing that, but I am going to devote the whole first part of this episode to her story. Sarah was born in 1944, the youngest of nine children, and she spent her early childhood living way out in the wilderness, often wearing clothes her mother made for her out of caribou hide. I was wearing caribou from head to toe. Uh, that's just us family out there, 50 miles from the nearest neighbor all around. Just us family, but I never lonesome or bored that I know of, yeah. 15 miles from your nearest neighbor would be a long ways even if you lived on a road. But this was roadless wilderness, with bears and wolves and foxes and wolverines all around. Sarah says she was warm, well-fed, and loved. And she and her siblings had a lot of fun adventures. We live our life on the land, and I grew up off the land. I learned more about respect and how each animal lives and how to respect them and all that. It wasn't like they were completely cut off from the rest of the world. Sarah says sometimes her dad would trade some furs for Western clothes for the kids, for instance. But however they could, her parents were trying to keep the family immersed in Gwich'in ways. You know, I was pro grew up in a good way, and I know what's ours and what's not. But I got taught very well by my uh, family, my parents, my grandparents, and my sister and brothers. And she says she didn't experience any sense of lacking anything in her young childhood, at least most of the year. The only time I got really hungry is during the birthing time and nursing time and training time for animal that's starting maybe first week of June until 15th of July. Because I remember my mom say uh, on 15th of July, we could trap for a ground squirrel. And around that time, we just about don't have anything to eat because we don't hunt anything in between that time because that's the birthing and nursing and training time. Sarah says she feels really lucky to have been raised out on the land this way, 
especially because so much was changing all around the family. When her parents were young, diseases like flu, chickenpox, and TB, brought into the area by Europeans, had swept through the community and killed many Gwich'in people. And many other forms of colonization had begun to intrude as well. Western religion and education, and increasing pressure on the Gwich'in to stop following the caribou herds and instead settle into permanent villages. But this concept of living all year round in one place seemed really strange. What we know is hunting and fishing, and we had to be out there to do it. And uh, it's hard to stay one place. But that was definitely the agenda of the U.S. government. At some point in Sarah's childhood, the Bureau of Indian Affairs began to threaten her parents that their children would be taken away if they didn't send them to school. So when she was 13, Sarah was shipped off to boarding school in Oregon. And that was strange. Oh, I heard my parents, I mean, they have to let us go to get education. That was pounding to their head, so they're glad that we were in school, but they need our help at home, too, and they miss us, too. I heard it used to be a very sad sight in Christmas time uh, when all their kids are not there. You know, I, I couldn't imagine how it is because I only have one one boy and he's about 44 right now, but, uh, you know, I go crazy just uh, when I don't know if he's okay or not, you know. Sarah graduated from high school, but she says she received her most valuable education at home. I feel that I learned more from living off the land. At least I learned respect and I learned who I am and uh, what's out there and how to share, how to preserve, how to, uh, you know, ration stuff. And I think that's why I, even today I uh, I kind of survive with what I got. And I'm thankful, for, you know, I don't have very much, but I'm thankful for it. After high school, Sarah's parents wanted her to get more formal education. But she was nervous because it seemed like she was going to have to transform herself into a completely different person, starting with her clothes. Usually the small uh, college are in a white community and nice community, like nice dress. And I don't, I don't have money for clothing. So I kind of feel bad. I would never make it there. I never have nylons. <laughs> and I hate nylons. <laughs> Me too. So, um, and then I had to be among a totally different group of people, like yeah. different community, all that. It's just, I just couldn't do it. But Sarah heard about another program called Relocation. Several years before, Congress had passed a law called the Indian Relocation Act. This was one piece of an overall assimilation agenda, which was ascendant in the 1950s and 60s. Sarah was told the federal government would pay for some vocational training and later help her get a job if she was willing to move to a city. This was the express purpose of the law, to urbanize the American Indian. Sarah looked over her options, and one place left out. And that was a... San Francisco. I saw San Francisco that the hippie movement, they wear anything. Nobody had to pay attention to my clothing. I could dress the way I want to. And that peace and love and flower and all that sounds good. 
So I said, ah, San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. And I was scared to death. Too big, man. She enrolled in business college where she would learn typing, data entry, and other clerical skills. And she arrived in San Francisco in 1967. The summer of 1967 was dubbed the Summer of Love. Tens of thousands of young people journeyed to San Francisco that year, heeding Timothy Leary's call to turn on, tune in, and drop out. John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas wrote this song for his friend Scott McKenzie, which became an anthem of the times. Looking at pictures from the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood at this time, or other places where the hippies were gathering, it's clear that the young white people were appropriating elements of Native American culture, or their ideas of Native culture. They were putting on headbands, painting their faces, even wearing buckskin. And here was Sarah James, who actually grew up wearing clothing made out of caribou hide. Did you spend a lot of time on Haight-Ashbury then? I went down to hang out, yeah because you feel comfortable there, yeah. At least there were no nylons required. Sarah met up with a friend from boarding school who was in the area training to be a nurse, and they began to navigate this new world together. And there was a lot more going on around them than love-ins and acid trips. Protests against the Vietnam War were heating up. The civil rights movement was in full swing, and Native Americans around the country began to voice their frustrations and demand change too. In fact, this is one of the great ironies of the Indian Relocation Act. The goal was to assimilate Native people and cut them off from their cultures. But as young Indigenous people were increasingly concentrated in cities, they began to share their experiences and ideas, which led to a new wave of Indian pride and Indigenous activism. In 1968, the American Indian Movement, or AIM, was founded in Minneapolis, and in San Francisco, young Native people were starting to use the phrase red power. Sarah says the Mission District became the gathering spot. On a weekend, we get to go down uh, 16th and Mission Street. That's where we hang out because they, they play band there one place. Sarah says Native people would come in from across the region, seeking each other out for companionship and political conversation. And then I start hanging around with San Francisco State College students. And they were talking about Native American rights. And right away to my interest, I keep hanging around with them. They just started American Indian law, and they were taking that class. And we just discuss it on the weekend. We hang around. They go back to their college. I go back to my apartment. And, well, anyway, one day, I guess they decided to take over the Alcatraz, take the island back. And you were part of that? Yeah. This is the point in the interview when I was like, wait, what? 
I sat down with Sarah to talk about drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and here I was learning she was a participant in one of the most important direct actions in 20th century Native American history. This is Richard Oakes, one of the leaders of the Alcatraz occupation, recorded by a local news channel. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaimed this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. Alcatraz is a small island in the San Francisco Bay that indigenous people had lived on or used for more than 10,000 years, most recently the Ohlone. What's this nation you want to establish out here? An American Indian nation comprising of all the, all the tribes, including the Alaskans. In the 1800s, the U.S. government took over the island, turning it into a military fortress and later a prison. And some of those prisoners were Native Americans, like the 19 Hopi people who were locked up on Alcatraz in 1895 for resisting the forced education of their children. The prison was shut down in 1963, and six years later, the students that Sarah was hanging out with in the mission decided to take the island back. Do you think you have the legal right to claim the island? And why? Well, you're talking about two different societies now. In my society, or in the Indian society, yes, we do. This was November 1969. Sarah was working at an insurance company at this point and sharing an apartment with that same friend from boarding school. Middle of the night at 2 o'clock, they came to our place, our, our apartment. For some reason that week, we moved. They didn't know we moved. And they came to our place, but we weren't there, so they went on without us. Would you have gone if you had been there? Oh yeah, I probably will just go. Sarah missed that knock on the door in the middle of the night, but when she and her friend woke up the next morning... And then we got up and looked at the TV. They were up there in the island. Hey, they did it! <laughs> there, they, they really did it. I, right away, I said, I'm going. So I start packing. So I packed and I went down. I, I, they were there at the dock where they said they are going to be. They're waiting to take people who wanted to join. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But it was a real small uh, rocking sailboat. I've never been in a sailboat in my life, and I'm not the best swimmer. Got on there, <laughs> I barely hauling on. It was packed full, inside and outside. I was outside hauling on, uh, all the way over there. The occupation of Alcatraz lasted for 19 months until June 1971, and it's now considered one of the pivotal moments in the story of Native Americans pushing back against white domination in the United States. At the beginning of the occupation, the students issued a proclamation saying they would pay the U.S. government $24 in glass beads and red cloth for the island, which was more, they pointed out, than what the colonists had paid for the purchase of Manhattan 300 years earlier. I'm going to play a little bit more of Richard Oakes reading the proclamation. And to understand the power of what he's saying here, you need to know that the Bureau of Indian Affairs, part of the Department of the Interior, was the face of the violent paternalism that these students were calling out. We will give to the inhabitants of this island a portion of that land for their own, to be held in trust by the American Indian government, to be administered by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs, for as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea. We will further guide the inhabitants in the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our life ways in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers up from their savage and unhappy state. We offer this treaty in good faith 
and wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with all white men. The whole proclamation is definitely worth a read. It's a pretty brilliant political essay in which these young indigenous people turn the tables on white society in a way that couldn't be ignored. And Sarah James was there. But she didn't stay long because in January 1970, her father died suddenly and she left for Alaska immediately. And I never went back because there's no phone, no electricity here and no way to go back, all that kind of stuff. So here's Sarah James in 1970, 26 years old, raised in the Alaska wilderness, and swept up into events that were making headlines all around the world. And now she's suddenly back in Arctic Village. The census that year recorded a population of 85 people. I imagine she might have felt like this was sort of the end of something. But as it turned out, all of this had been training for what was coming next. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm in Arctic Village, Alaska, listening to the story of Gwich'in leader Sarah James. After a childhood in the Alaska wilderness, adolescence in an Oregon boarding school, and on-the-ground activist training in San Francisco, Sarah had returned home to a state about to be transformed by oil. Up on the coast, the Prudhoe Bay oil field had been discovered, and by the late 1970s, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was built. Oil was flowing south to the port of Valdez day and night. In the 1980s, Sarah started hearing that drilling operations might be expanded to the east of Prudhoe, into the calving grounds of the porcupine caribou herd. And so I went to my brother that time, and I told my brother, well, how come they keep telling they're going to do a gas and oil development up there? And he said, yeah, oil companies are huge. They're very huge. We can't stop it, you know, just us. It's too huge. I, I don't think we'll get anywhere with it. Well, we'll shall see about it. I told him that, you know, and he said, there might be a way. Let's, let's work on it, he said. So I, I left. And she got to work. I was one of the tribal council then. And the tribal council chose me to deal with environment issues. So Sarah started going to meetings throughout the region, learning about what was going on up on the coast and how it might affect the caribou. She says she definitely wasn't working alone. Lots of folks were involved, including Inupiaq people, who were also concerned about protecting the caribou and their own communities. In 1987, they succeeded in getting the U.S. and Canada to sign an international treaty designed to protect the porcupine caribou herd, and the language of the treaty made it clear that the animals needed to be protected both for their own sake and for the sake of the people who depended on them, both nutritionally and culturally. The treaty also established the Porcupine Caribou Management Board, which still exists today and is supposed to be consulted on development projects that could impact the herd. But the Gwich'in knew the allure of the oil was going to continue to turn the heads of the big companies, and the treaty lacked an enforcement mechanism. By itself, it wasn't enough to prevent drilling on the coastal plain. 
So members of the new management board started going out to villages and talking to people. They went to each village and talked to elders. What do we should do? And the one elder, Myra Kay, uh, she said, well, when we deal with it back in the day, like back before our first visitor, when there's a threat to our nation, and this is a threat to our nation, they come together as a nation, and and then they make decision within less than four days. Then that's how they deal with the issue in those days, bow and arrow days. And we should do that. We should call the Gucha Nation back together and take it on from then. Sarah says this idea of bringing the whole Gwich'in nation together to figure out how to respond to the threat of oil development quickly gained traction among the Gwich'in. So they called Gwich'in gather here in Arctic Village. June 5 to 10, 1988, people start coming in. I think we have 15 chief U.S. and Canada and 15 elders and one youth from each village. That was kind of the official delegation, but Sarah says Gwich'in people from across their home territory started arriving. And getting the whole Gwich'in community together in one place at one time was no small feat. These are tiny villages scattered across really rugged, wild territory with no roads connecting them and divided by a national border. One family chartered a plane. Others piled into boats and took them up the rivers. It's difficult to travel that river from here to Yukon, but then they did. Sarah says back in what she calls bow and arrow days, the semi-nomadic life of the Gwich'in meant that all of the different subgroups met and mingled frequently. But the colonization process had changed that, and the various Gwich'in bands had become much more separate from each other. At the 1988 gathering, Sarah says they were reminded that they shared a common language and history and common concerns for the future. And it's just like a rebirth of the nation, the whole, everybody getting to know each other. There's some graveyard of their relatives here they want to visit. One native-owned media organization was allowed to film parts of the event, and we've put a link to that video up on our website. <laughs> there were non-Gwich'in people who came to the gathering, too. Government officials, representatives from conservation groups, and Sarah says they brought their non-Gwich'in ways of doing things with them. They came up with an agenda, but uh, when they start the meeting, those elders took over the meetings and said, we don't need this agenda. So they tore up the agenda and said, we'll take it from here. Whatever plan the outside groups may have had, the elders said, no thank you. This is our gathering and we'll do it our way. And then somebody presented a talking stick. It's just a stick with an eagle head on it. And then they said, we'll talk with a stick. And we had to be in the center of the whole community hall. So that's how they ran the meeting. And almost everything happened in Gwich'in. The video doesn't give names for individual speakers, but it does provide translations. 
And this man is saying, oil burns when the trucks and cats work and the wells are drilled. The oil spreads all over the caribou's food. He says, what will become of our children when the caribou go? The story of the outside groups creating an agenda and the elders promptly tossing it out, I think this is an important detail. As we talked about last time, one of the meta battles surrounding the fight over drilling in the refuge is who controls the narrative. Are pro-oil groups using some Inupiaq people to advance their agenda? Are conservation groups doing the same with the Gwich'in? But both of those lines of thought give all the agency to white people. In Sarah's narrative, the Gwich'in are the protagonists. They know what they want, and they make it happen. She's not describing some hapless group of people who can easily be manipulated by outsiders. And together here, we're going to fight in a good way to teach many white people out there who do not understand our ways. We got to teach them. Sarah says it quickly became clear that there was no disagreement among the Gwich'in about the goal. What they were trying to figure out was a strategy. They know that they're against oil and gas development, but how are we going to do it, you know? What to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to do it? And then they say, the only way we're going to win is unless we do it in a good way, educate the world in a good way, and make friends, because we can't do it ourselves. It's too huge. So they wrote a resolution, a short, clear message saying who they were and what they wanted. You can read it on our website. It says the Gwich'in have a right to continue their way of life and that their culture depends on the caribou. Therefore, oil and gas development should be prohibited in the 1002 area. And we have it writing with our signatures on it. I think they know at least we have one nation of Gwich'in people that are saying no, and, that, and we mean no, and you know, maybe it may, it may, may help a little in the decision making. We are the caribou people. If it wasn't for the caribou, we won't be here today. Uh, to take away of who you are and be proud of who you are, that's genocide. At the 1988 gathering, the Gwich'in chose eight ambassadors to help get that message out to the world. Sarah was one of them. And this was a permanent appointment. This was now her assigned role in the community for the rest of her life. So she picked up that mantle and has never set it down. She's given speeches all over the country. She's traveled to Washington, D.C. countless times to meet with lawmakers and to testify at congressional hearings. And every two years since 1988, the Gwich'in have held another gathering. And every two years, they've reaffirmed their opposition to drilling on the coastal plain. They never break what they made decision on at that time. And never have, and it never will. So that's the message Sarah has been repeating over and over. Look like uh, we made the right decision back in 1988. We overcame many, many battles because all Americans out there, along with us, spoke loud and clear they don't want a gas and oil development. And I believe it's going to stay that way. I believe we're going to win. 
I recorded this conversation in August of 2017. In December of that year, President Trump signed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was open for oil and gas drilling. I feel like my home is being attacked. I feel like my children are being attacked. Again, this is Bernadette Dementif. To, to me, this is how I look at it. Like, I would walk into your house, sit at your table, and just start going through your cupboards and going and kicking back on your couch, kicking my feet. That's how I feel when they're coming in here and just wanting to rip everything apart. You know, I get angry, but then I have to always remember, I have to go back to what our elders say and do it in a good way. Stay with us for part two.